0: one of those mornings for me, at least. Lost my keys this morning. Went around barking at my family, trying to find them. They were in the front door. I'd left them in the front door. And in my frantic search for them, I left the house without my coffee. So I'm really not sure how this is going to go today. Um, Pray for me as we move into this. But go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 20 in just a moment. But as I I begin this morning, I I want you to consider the fact that in our almost three months now of studying this gospel, consider that the writer of Mark's gospel, John Mark, has been, he's been consumed with, with showing us one fundamental truth. And it's that Jesus is the Son of God. And that makes perfect sense. All four biblical gospels are written, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written to leave credible evidence that Jesus is... God, 100% a man, 100% God. God in union with humanity, the divine in flesh. He's the Messiah of Israel, he's the King of kings, he's the Savior of the world, and all that comes from the reality that he is the Lord God. And that is an important truth, that is critical, because believing that is what determines one's eternal destiny, meaning what you believe about Jesus Christ is, is the most important conclusion you make in life. You make determinations and decisions and choices every day of your life, and all of those things have varying consequences, but what you think about Jesus, that has an eternal consequence. So it's crucial then that you believe rightly. And in order for you to believe in Christ rightly and savingly, in order for you to entrust your eternity to him, you have to have the evidence that he is who he claimed to be. And that evidence is presented to us not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in these Gospels. And the evidence in these Gospels is powerful evidence. It's endured for 20 centuries. It's laid down by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and when we read it, we come to understand the truthfulness Of it and the weight of it and when we embrace it as true we embrace Christ but as great as the evidence found in this in these Gospels may be it was even more powerful when it was demonstrated and lived out in the life and the ministry of Jesus remember these aren't just legends here this this all happened in front of people this is history For three years, Jesus traversed the land of Israel. He blanketed the whole region from Galilee to Judea to Samaria to Phoenicia. And everywhere he went, he gave evidence of who he was. Even more evidence than we have recorded here. And I say that because John ends his gospel, you remember this, by saying, if everything that Jesus said and did were to be written down, the books of the world couldn't contain it. So as incredible as the stories we do have may be, they don't begin to come close to the thousands upon thousands, if not tens of thousands of miracles that were being done by Jesus. The books of the world can't contain all that he did. Knowing that, knowing that, it seems pretty reasonable that the only sane conclusion that an eyewitness of Jesus could make is that he is in fact God. His life's testimony was so clear, and so obvious, and so widespread, he had to be God. However, in spite of what was reasonable, in spite of what was so, so clear, in spite of the fact that people saw his miracles day after day after day after day, the human heart, the human mind is hard, and it's blind, and it's dead to the truth. And so here at the end of, uh, of the third chapter of Mark, We've yet to hear a single human testimony confessing that Jesus is God. Not one. The father said it, announced it at his baptism. This is my beloved son, who I'm well pleased. The demons have said it in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, but no human testimony has been uttered. In fact, the religious leaders, they've seen all that Jesus has done, and their conclusion, he needs to die. So the religious elites, the Pharisees, the scribes, they have seen his, his irrefutable power and authority, but they see it as a threat, so they're already conspiring to have him killed. And here's what I want to do for just a second. I want to take us away from the text, just for a minute, because Mark continues to talk about these, deli- these different religious leaders and opponents, and, and councils and groups, all these people opposing Jesus. And I am want to take a moment in my introduction here just to clarify, to distinguish between the different religious and political leaders in Israel that might have existed in the first century, that did exist in the first century. We tend to lump them together, but there are distinctions to each group. Let's break down those in power. First you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees talked about a lot in the New Testament, in the Gospels. They were the political and religious leaders excuse me, religious conservatives of the day. Their name actually means separate in Aramaic. They were strict law keepers, the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament, and then the countless number of traditions that they and the scribes had come up with. There was about 6,000 Pharisees during the time of Christ. This is an office that wasn't prescribed in the Old Testament. It actually came into existence after the exiles, the captivities. Then you have the scribes, or the teachers of the law. We hear about those men quite a bit. The scribe was a man, likely a Pharisee, but not necessarily, whose profession was to make copies of the Scriptures. This man knew the Old Testament forwards and back. He actually knew how many strokes of the pen it took to write a single page of certain passage in the Old Testament. He was an expert in the Mosaic law. He would have occupied himself with a great deal of teaching. Most rabbis fell into the category of scribe. Then you had the Sadducees. We've all remember the Sadducees. That's, that's, a, that's a group that hasn't been introduced in Mark's gospel yet, but they will show up. They were from the Jewish aristocracy. They were elites. They were advocates of Hellenization. So the Greek thought that had covered most of the world at this time, they really took it on. They, they, they absorbed the Greek thought and appreciated it. They thought themselves to be sophisticated. They held the law of Moses in high regard, but they didn't believe that the rest of the scriptures were inspired. They didn't believe in angels or miracles. They didn't have room in their paradigm for a bodily resurrection. Caiaphas would have been a Sadducee. Then the Herodians... The Herodians showed up in the uh, first part of chapter 3. They were a pro-Herod party. They were religiously very liberal, if religious at all. They were more interested in Roman politics than the scriptures or in spirituality. Their concern really was power. They wanted power. Then the chief priests. There were 24 courses of priests who took turns serving in the temple throughout the calendar year. So a chief priest from each precinct of priests. This made up the chief priests. They were the upper echelon from, from among the priestly order, from among the Levites. Then we have the elders. And the elders, these were representatives of the major tribes and families of Israel. They may have been governors or local magistrates, key patriarchs, just a mixed bag of, of, of powerful and influential figures throughout Israel. And so members of these groups that I've just mentioned they comprised what we call the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of Israel. There were 70 members of that body. Their leader was the high priest himself. So maybe that helps you understand the different groups whose whose opposition to Jesus is now raging. These religious leaders uh, are opposed to Jesus, really in a way that, We begin to see is ironically diabolical, and we're going to see it show up again in today's passage. Let's look at Mark chapter three, beginning in verse twenty. I'll read through verse thirty-five. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes. Then he went home, he being Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. So today you'll notice, as I read there, That verses 22 through 30 in that passage sort of insert themselves into a larger story about Jesus and his family. You see that? In verses 20 and 21, his family comes for him. But then we have this inserted scene with the religious leaders. And then in verses 31 through 35, we pick up back with his family again. Now, we read the whole passage, but this morning we're going to focus on that inserted encounter with the scribes. And then next week, we'll look at this same passage, kind of a part two to this message, and then focus on that concern with his family. But in these verses, and I know you saw this, something is brought up that is extremely misunderstood and and confusing and even scary for people. And it's this idea of the unpardonable sin. The passage never actually uses that phrase, but that's the one people like to use. And it's, it's the idea that confuses, I think, more Christians than just about any idea that I know of. And we're going to talk about it this morning, and I want to do that by breaking this scene into three frames. We have an accusation, an explanation, and then a condemnation. But before I do that, many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. I quote Lewis often. I usually reference his children's books but you know that he was much more than a children's author. He was an English professor at Oxford in England and probably the foremost Christian intellectual of the 20th century. Lewis actually came to faith in Christ as an adult. He had been an atheist. So when he embraced Christianity, he didn't set out to be an apologist for the Christian faith, but by virtue of his prowess, it just sort of happened. Then Lewis defended Christianity in a world where it was being Christianity was being increasingly scrutinized, where Christianity was being seen as something the modern world was outgrowing and it was leaving it behind. And one of the things uh, being said of Jesus in Lewis' day, which is still being said in our day, is that Jesus was simply a good, moral teacher. That's it. He wasn't God. He wasn't the Savior of mankind. He had no divine authority. He was just a good, moral teacher teacher. Have you ever heard that said about Jesus? And maybe people say that as a way to honor Christianity without actually believing in Jesus Christ. Maybe they say that because they don't want to offend you. But Lewis said, there's no way we can say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. It's not an option. And Lewis said this by offering what is called a trilemma. A trilemma. He does this in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, one of three things is true. Jesus is either a lunatic on the level of somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, or he's a liar at such a calculated and extreme level as to probably be unequaled as a purveyor of deception, or he is Lord. But, said Lewis, forget the patronizing nonsense that he's a good teacher. That's just not an option. So, Lord, liar, lunatic. That's what we have to choose from. And I can't be sure about this, but I have a suspicion that Lewis may have discovered that paradigm in Mark 3 here. Because in verse 21, Jesus' family basically calls him a lunatic. They say he's out of his mind. And then in verse 22, the scribes, the religious leaders, say he's possessed by Beelzebul. The, therefore, they call him a liar who claims to be from God, but he, he is in fact from Satan in their minds and then finally what's implied by the testimony of the Holy Spirit down in verse 29 is that he is Lord of all let's get into the outline let's look at this accusation verse 22 starts with an outlandish accusation and it's that Jesus Christ is possessed by Beelzebul But notice who the accusation is coming from. It's not the local scribes any longer. It's not the Galilean scribes. It's a group of scribes that have come down from Jerusalem. Jesus' reputation has spread to Jerusalem and Judea. So now an envoy of scribes from Jerusalem have come, and they are informing Jesus that they have made a settled conclusion about him. They have settled that his power is on loan from Satan, that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. That's their final judgment. Their final verdict on his teaching and the verdict on his miracles is that he is a possessed man. Now, why don't they just conclude that he's insane? Why can't they do what we do when a a David Koresh or a Charles Manson or some other lunatic with a God complex shows up? Why can't they just say he's crazy? It reminds me of the guy... In the mental institution, he's lying in his bed and he's saying, "I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon." And the guy in the next bed says, "Who told you that?" And he said, "God did." The guy in the next bed said, "No, I did not." They can't conclude he's insane because they have to explain his supernatural authority. They have to explain the tremendous power behind his miracles and his teaching. They can't deny what he's been doing. He's been doing it everywhere. His ministry of healing is so widespread that that people are coming from the whole region to see Jesus. His power is undeniable. He either has to be God or he has to be another supernatural power. He has to be of Satan. Beelzebul was actually a name for Satan. It was basically a name that, that meant what Mark says there in the second statement in verse 22, that he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul was a name to, to, to designate the ruler of the demons. Where did it come from? Probably from Beelzebub. That may be more familiar to you. And that name came from the god Baal. Baal means Lord. And the Ekronites, Ekron was a city of the Philistines, and according to 2 Kings chapter 1, the Ekronites had a god named Beelzebub, excuse me, which means the Baal of the high place, or the lord of the high place, lord of the temple. Beelzebub was the Ekronite god. And the Jews purposefully corrupted the, the name Beelzebub into Beelzebul, because when you change it from, the, from ending in B to L, it goes from being the lord of the high place to being the lord of the manure. So a very purposeful corruption. These, these Jews nicknamed the Ekronite God as a way to make fun of it. I live with three elementary age children, and this sort of behavior seems very appropriate to me. Everything sort of comes back to potty talk with them. And through the years, this Beelzebul, this lord of the dung or lord of the flies that collect on the dung, to a Jew to become the name for Satan. So the settled conclusion of the the religious leadership of Israel is that Jesus is not the holy lord of heaven. Despite the tremendous evidence, despite the the awe-inspiring power, they say no, we cannot admit that. And instead, they use the vilest possible slander and blasphemy. And they say the Son of God is nothing but a servant of Beelzebul. They say he's a liar. He's not God. He's in service to Satan. That's the accusation. Then there's an explanation. I love verse 23. He called them to himself. Jesus called them to himself. Come here, guys, come here. Come over here. He knew exactly what he needed to say. he began speaking to them the text says in parables or analogies Parabole means to lay something alongside you've got something you don't understand you lay something you do understand alongside and then it makes it clear and he starts with a logical absurdity and then he goes to a logical reality the absurdity how can satan cast out satan how can he do that i mean that's an absurdity is it not I mean there might be inconsistency in his kingdom, Satan is not all knowing. There might be chaos in the way he works, but he's certainly not by design going around tearing up his own kingdom. And then he goes on further, Jesus does, makes makes some truisms, some self evident statements. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not stand. Seems pretty obvious. Verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His design is not to turn in on himself. Satan won't win by implosion. Sort of like OU the other night. You know They're not going to win if they implode in on themselves. So he's saying to these scribes, you've got to be kidding me. Satan's not going to do that. Satan wants to destroy the work of God. He doesn't want to destroy his own work. Your accusation implies that Satan seeks to, seeks to destroy his own work. Then he speaks to one more reality. Verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Another parable. If you want to go in and get the property of someone, you have to overpower the guy got to be stronger than he is to get the property so jesus is saying the only logical conclusion here is that i'm stronger than satan and there's only one who's stronger than satan and who is that it's god again jesus is saying i'm god that's why i'm destroying the darkness of the spiritual realm that's exactly what jesus had been doing think about his ministry From his first miracle in Mark's Gospel, that miracle there in the synagogue in Capernaum, he is exposing the demons. He's dismissing the demons. He's rescuing people who'd been possessed by the demons. He does this throughout the first three chapters of the book. He's plundered the strong man's house. And you have to bind the strong man to do that. Therefore, whoever Jesus is, he is stronger than Satan. And the scribes have just set themselves up for this one because their claim... Is Jesus did what he did by the power of Satan. The problem with that is it's logically absurd for Satan to cast out Satan. And if Jesus is not Satan casting out Satan, then he's greater than Satan. And to be greater than Satan is to be God. So the scribes have proven Jesus' point. And Jesus, master teacher that he is, he shows them that. So this is not a lunatic. That doesn't work. And Jesus is not satanic. He's not a deceptive liar who represents hell and wants everybody to think he represents heaven. Who is he? Well, you're left with one final option, and that that is that he is God. He's Lord. Look at the final verses there, verses 28 to 30. There we see a condemnation, or at least a warning of condemnation. In response to their accusations, Jesus issues a very serious warning to the scribes. He warns them that they are in danger of crossing the line with God. They are in danger of committing a sin for which there is no forgiveness. An unpardonable sin, we've called it. Let's take a look at these verses. Perhaps we can shed some light on what this sin is and how a person can avoid committing it. Two categories of sin here, verse 28. First, we see there is a sin that can be forgiven. And Jesus makes a glorious statement in this verse. He starts it by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, that phrase is only used by Jesus in the New Testament. He's about to lay something down that is from God, that is true. Verily, verily, I think the old King James says, it just means it's the word amen or amen. It's, he's, he's saying, here comes a truth. You better, if you hear any of the truth I say, hear this one. He says, all manner of sins and blasphemes can be forgiven. Let me read that again. All manner of sins and blasphemes can be forgiven. Can you just stop for a second and praise the Lord for that? Take any sin you may have committed. Any blaspheming word you may have spoken or thought, or thought, and it can be forgiven. No matter how vile the sin, no matter how vile the sinner, forgiveness is available if a person will just come to Jesus knowing they need His grace and His mercy. And when a sin is brought to Him, He does away with it, forever. Forever. The the proclamation of forgiveness here is a glorious entry point into the gospel. If you've never embraced Christ through faith alone, if you've never just said, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus, I see that I'm a sinner, and and he is my only hope, but I've got some really ugly things to be forgiven. You need to look at this verse and go, all manner of sin, all manner of every sin, any sin. There's no category that sets you outside of grace and forgiveness. This is why Jesus came. He came to die and by his death purchase forgiveness for every man. He's able to forgive every manner of evil except one. Except one there. Look at your, look at your text. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of of an eternal sin the eternal sin for those Jesus was speaking to was this it was being confronted with the full revelation of Jesus Christ seeing him and his power and his miracles and then concluding in your heart Jesus is demonic he's a liar how does that blaspheme the Holy Spirit you might ask Well, when Jesus came into the world, the New Testament says he set aside his own power, and he said, I only do what the Father shows me and tells me to do. And then he did all the Father told him to do, and he did it by the power of the Spirit. That's how Jesus operated, by the power of the Spirit. So whatever he did was the Father's will, and it was done through the Spirit's power. So if you say Jesus is satanic, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was doing his work through him. Holy Spirit came upon him at his bat- baptism. The Holy Spirit led him from there into the wilderness to be tempted, was with him through his temptation. The Holy Spirit then anointed him to preach, and away he went preaching and doing all his ministry. If you were there in the first century and you saw it and you heard it and you experienced it, and your final conclusion was he's demonic, Jesus saying, you're damned. That's an eternal sin. What about today then? Could somebody commit this today? Could somebody reject Christ and His Holy Spirit today? But uh, perhaps they could, but think about it. We've all been forgiven for rejecting Christ, haven't we? We've all been forgiven for rejecting Christ because we weren't born saved. Our default mode was to reject Christ. But through persevering grace and through hearing truth and hearing and seeing the Spirit's work on our hearts, we stopped rejecting and began to love Christ and worship Christ and trust in Christ. And that's all of us. We go from rejecters of Christ to worshipers of Christ. But the one who won't be forgiven is the one called the apostate, who gets full exposure to the truth, full exposure to the gospel, and, and then he makes the final conclusion, this is not true. I reject Christ. This is a deception. If that's where you end up after hearing and seeing the truth, after having it fully revealed to you, that's what's called apostasy, and that is unforgivable. The Holy Spirit's testimony is that he is Lord, and to reject that in a settled and final way is unforgivable. There's actually a commentary on this in the book of Hebrews. Just briefly book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 4, it says this. I'm going to paraphrase. I don't want you to have to turn there. It says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, that's knowledge, you're enlightened, you had information, revelation. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, the text says, heavenly gift being the kingdom, being Christ, being the message of salvation, the gospel, you've tasted it. You, you didn't eat and drink of it necessarily, but you tasted it. The text says, who partook of the Holy Spirit. You lived and, and, and you operated in the midst of the Holy Spirit as he worked and he operated in the life of the church. You saw him change people's lives and bring unity and worship and rich fellowship. Unlike anything outside the church, you partook of the Holy Spirit. And then the text says, and you've now fallen away. It's impossible, the writer of Hebrews says, to renew you to repentance because you crucified to yourself the Son of God and put him... To open shame it's a paraphrase of Hebrews 6 one of the most disputed argued talked about verses in all of the New Testament so even though you've tasted it even though you touched it you were there you were exposed to to it your ultimate decision is to walk away from it you conclude he's not God it's not real it's a sham verse 6 there in Hebrews chapter 6, shuts the door on the person that arrives to that place, saying it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's sobering. Sobering stuff. But this passage should, should do two things. It should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. If you are worried that you've committed this eternal sin, I believe your worry is a sure sign that you have not. Maybe some of you have thought that you're guilty of some blasphemy that can never be forgiven. Maybe you thought you've you've put yourself beyond the reach of the grace of God. You've just said and you've done too much. Let me remind you of a guy named Paul. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he said this, I love this. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry, even though I was formerly a what? A blasphemer. The most used man of God was a rejecter of Christ, was a rejecter, a, a persecutor of the church, killed Christians. But through the revelation of the Son of God, he came to worship Christ. Bible scholar Sam Storms, and I'll just conclude with a couple of quotes here. He says, Those who are most worried that they may have committed the unpardonable sin have not. This is a sin for while there is no concern, no conviction, and no anxiety, and thus no repentance. It is a sin that is so hard-hearted and willful and persistent and defiant that the one committing it couldn't care less that he or she is committing it. friend of mine, Michael Patton, says, While I understand the fear that people may have about this sin, I can promise you that if you have ever come to Christ recognizing who he is and said, Have mercy on me, the sinner, then there is no possibility that you have committed this sin. Take comfort in this. The devil may be trying to rob you of your security by whispering in your ear that you must take ownership of a sin that you can never own. This is a sobering passage. And these religious leaders are in a a sobering place to see the fully disclosed grace and work of God, to see the Son of God Himself and conclude that He's a liar and that He's from Satan. To reject the work of the Spirit. May we not be a people, a church, an individual that rejects the Holy Spirit but we embrace Christ for who He is, for who we've seen Him revealed in Scripture. And when we put ourselves on at His feet, uh, throw ourselves down and say, we're, we're at Your mercy. We know who You are. Uh, you're the Lord of all. You're the King. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for this Word, for this, for the richness of it, on one hand but also for the sobering nature of it that we live in a world that we see people who know your word they've seen the truth of the scriptures it's been revealed to them the gospel yet they continue to run have grace on those and if they're settled in their mind God if they're in this camp this category that puts them as unforgivable God, give us all grace to weep for those who don't know you. And, Lord, help us to use that sorrow, that weeping, to chase down and go after any and all that may need to come to know you. Maybe that's through Bible distribution. Maybe that's through evangelism in the jails. Maybe that's through just going to our neighbors and knocking on their door and telling them about you. God, if there's anyone here today that needs to know you, I pray that they would not run from you but run to you. and put all their trust the full weight of who they are upon christ it's in his name we pray amen all right well it's been great to be able to worship with you this morning we don't have a concluding song today we're a little bit over time uh so just a little forgiveness and levity there would be appreciated uh but i'd ask you to stand And I'm just going to send you out in the confidence and the assurance of the the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus this morning. You're dismissed.